The Ryan Tuberty Show on RTE Radio 1 with Elevon Merchant Services. Growing your business is easy peasy with us by your side. Hello there, welcome to our weekly podcast. This is a compilation of our best interviews from the last five days, all in one place. And so this week, our Dancing with the Stars coverage kicked off with new judge and acclaimed choreographer Arthur Garonlian, who gave me a sincere account of fleeing Armenia during their war with Azerbaijan and the impact that had on his family. Dr. Jonathan Egan, lecturer in psychology at NUI Galway, talked to me about the difficult feelings we're all experiencing during these unprecedented and difficult times. It took Conor McCauley a long time to come to terms with his Duchenne muscular dystrophy disorder. He told his story and discussed how the Irish Wheelchair Association are working to help kids in the same situation he was in. Tim of PetBond.ie spoke to me about designer dog breeds and the challenges pets face based on human decisions. And Garrett Daly told me about his new documentary, Nothing to Declare, which tells the unbelievable tale of two boys from Dublin who hopped on the dart and ended up in New York. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoy it. Pirouetting, leaping, pas de deux. Uh, let's see, where are we going? Dancing right. with the Stars on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Muller Corner. Well, what a pleasure it is to welcome to the studio and meet for the first time the newest judge on Dancing with the Stars, Arthur Garonlian. Garonlian, well done, yes. Uh, sorry, we'll get to that. Yes, we'll get to it. Lovely Smart. to meet you, Arthur. Nice to meet you. And thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me. I honestly feel like I'm talking to an Irish royalty here, <laughs> Ryan. This is amazing. <laughs> you did a great job last night. Thank you. Uh, I thought you really brought the buzz and thank you really enriched the programme so congratulations thank I you really very mean much that. thank you thank um, you and how was it for you as I say it was unreal honestly I'm still on Clyde Nye right now it's an amazing spectacular journey I've been on yeah. it's been absolutely amazing when I sat in the chair and then when Jennifer said hello Arthur my heart literally dropped yes. I thought I'm going to lose every single word I have in my body but I enjoyed it honestly you enjoyed every bit it of it it was so good yeah. Yeah, great hair thank you very great. hot though in the studio yeah, it's, I can it's imagine. It's getting really hot. But great. yeah, thank you. And uh, great style as well. And thank what you. I have to ask you what cologne you're wearing. I can, it's, I'm can. i wearing actually Louis Vuitton. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's, that's, that's drifting. It's wafting thank over you here too. I'm glad it's you good. like it. It's very I'm good. It's, like it. it's all going well. So you're, you're, yeah. you're full, full, full of beans and ready to go this morning, which is great because last night... It's, uh, it's quite an adrenaline. We talked about the adrenaline buzz. Uh, you were wired very afterwards. 100%. Listen, when we finished, I was in my hotel room and I went to bed around 3 a.m. Because normally yeah, when a is. show finishes, you go partying, you know, yeah. have a couple of drinks, yeah, et yeah. you are with lots of people. Yeah. I was in my room alone. I was like, 3 in the morning, what do I do? Yeah, and your, 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 your heart's beating. And you're, you yeah, are, yeah, no yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah. No idea. It's it crazy. was amazing. Yeah. And you're, you're originally from Armenia. I am um, And this is a country I know very little about, about other than there was a horrible, it was, was it a civil war? or was it, it was, a, yeah, it was war with Azerbaijan, hence why I left my so country. How old were you when you left Armenia? I was uh, 12 going on 13. Now 12 yeah. years old is uh, is a critical age in, in the life of a young person because you're totally aware. You can't pretend it's a game or an adventure. You know what's happening. What what was happening in, in your family and, and, and in, in that wartime situation? If you don't mind me asking. Yeah, no, it's fine. Um, I think, like you said, I was 12, so I remember a little bit, but I don't 
at the same time because my mom and my dad covering a lot for their kids. Yeah. So they were showing everything was fine, yeah. but then it wasn't. So we literally packed our bags when all that started. We packed our bags, going on holiday, going to, I don't know, I think our visa was going to Denmark, I think. Mm. And we just left. We left everything. Imagine you're packing your bag, going to, I don't know, Spain yeah. and never come back. That's exactly what we did. So I remember all that. I mean, this bigger thing happened, but it was surreal leaving the country. But I was always protected by my mother. She's my idol. She's done everything for me. Isn't that amazing? But who was who was coming to attack, or what were you running from? We were right. It was a war between Azerbaijan and Armenia. Yeah. So it started, you know, out of blue, and um, it was about the territory. And obviously, we didn't want to fight. You know, Armenia's been there since day one. We didn't want to fight. And it's exactly the same thing happened in 2020, September. Not many people know because I don't think people really pay attention to Armenia. But it was very sad. It happened again 2020. So that's why we left Armenia. And we, yeah. Okay. And was it, was it, a, a, were you into kind of ethnic cleansing territory or was it more just an uncomfortable situation for your family? It was mainly like ethnic cleansing. They kind of, want to get rid of Armenians, really. They want to clean clean us. That's exactly what I tried to do. Running away from that with your with your parents protecting you, isn't isn't that beautiful how they, they put the wings around the children? And it, you, you always think of refugees and escape, but like it's so scary. And yet with good parents, like you, you describe your mother particularly, they bring you somewhere with this like Marvel safe. superhero cloak. Yes. Yeah. And listen, I never really knew what they went through. Yeah. Because when we arrived to, I remember where our visa was to go to Denmark, but we ended up two weeks travel from Russia, et cetera, et cetera. And then we ended up in Cologne. I remember we didn't have any money to go to Denmark yeah. to get a train. And my sister was just standing there and somebody gave money to her. Really? Because they thought she was homeless. So that money actually helped us to go to Belgium. Hence why we ended up in Belgium and then we had to claim asylum and be refugees. And that's when it all started, you know, back in 2004. That was 1994. So February 1994. That recently? Yeah, 1994. And then we ended up being refugees in Belgium. So Belgium kind of saved my life, really. And who was in Belgium? Yourself? Myself, my mother, my sister, my dad. And I had my aunt, which um, she was with us. And yeah, we were all together. But at the same time, we didn't know what's going to happen. And to me, I was a little child. I was loving life, you know, yeah. like trying to follow my parents. But then now growing up, I've seen all the papers and I'm like, oh my God, you went through all this. Yeah. My mother did everything without me knowing. Like what? Like uh, when my dad passed away after two years being in Belgium, it was so bad because the Belgium government said, okay, we're not accepting Accepting you, yeah. you have to go back to Armenia. That's it. You can't live in this country. So we didn't know what to do. And thank God we were in this little village called Malmedy in Belgium. Yeah. We became famous is a wrong word, but we became so known. We were the first Armenian uh, family mm. in that village. Okay. That everybody knew. I mean, there was only 4,000 people. Everybody knew us. And they said, no way you're going anywhere. You're going to stay here. Really? You and your two kids. And then we'd stay there. And then in the end, my mom met someone. Yeah. She got married. And my stepdad saved our life. If not, I would never be sitting here talking wow, to what you. What a story. Yeah. I mean, it, it, and it seems like uh, you are constantly... Uh, had a speed bump to cross, and you, you with the strength of your your your, your mother, you just kept 
plowing hours. 100%. I mean, she was my rock. She would say, we'll do this, we'll do that. Yeah. And everybody really helped us. And I remember, I will never forget when my dad passed away, my life completely changed. I was 16 years old. I said, I was very shy. I was very calm. I can't believe that, Arthur. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. I know. Okay. But <laughs> no, no, that's, that's very, that's, that, this is a very hopeful story for <laughs> I, shy, introverted 15-year-olds. I, I believe me, I was, I was so calm and shy. But you know what? My dad has so many dreams in his life. Yeah. His dream, as an Armenian person, you dream to be in Paris to see the Eiffel Tower. Okay. And he never made it. So when he passed away, I said, that's it. I'm changing my life. Wow. I was 16 years old. I said to myself, nothing will affect me. I'm going to live my life to the fullest. <laughs> that's exactly what I've been doing since. Well, can I ask you what happened to your dad? He must have been very young. He, uh, yes, he was 45. He just literally woke up in the morning. He said, I've got a sting in my head. And he had hemorrhage and died. Oh, God. Literally, like, we're, it's, I mean... Yeah. yeah, my life been, I, I keep describing, this is my 10th life. I'm yeah. living my 10th life. Being in Ireland, now I can call home. I love Ireland so much. This is my 10th life. It's amazing. Yeah. And, and it, 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 there's a great book in it, obviously, and not to mention the movie, because as you're describing it, I'm on the trains and I'm seeing your sister and I'm seeing Belgium. And the, the, the yeah, community you're describing well. Yeah, no, but it's yeah. great. It's a great story. And then, um, so, so life then at 16, changes everything and a young shy Arthur in the corner becomes vavavoom the Arthur. crazy loud energetic Tasmanian devil basically <laughs> the Armenian like, devil literally the Armenian <laughs> devil I, I just changed because I, I remember I wasn't even dancing or doing anything uh, like every parent wanted their kids to have a diploma and I always loved art yes and I started doing hairdressing because I had uncles who were barbers hairdressers so I started doing hairdressing and I finished and I moved to Brussels. From the little village, I went to capital of Belgium, Brussels, on my own. I'm like, I can do this. So I was 16 and a half. Went to Belgium, uh, Brussels on my own. And I started doing hairdressing. And then I was keep pushing, keep pushing. And then my dancing career kicked off. And that kicked off. And Randomly, completely randomly. Yeah, because how do you, were you just... I mean, were you trained or? Never been trained, Ryan. I always want to perform. I'm a, how do you say, an exhibitionist. I okay. love showing myself. I love, I'm not shy. I mean, okay. yeah, no, I mean, that's good. I that's was shy good before, but not anymore. Okay. But I remember I was actually, I was like, I want to dance, but I never realized you can be a dancer making money. I never realized it's a career. So I remember I got spotted. I was in Antwerp with my friends dancing in a club. And I remember the girl came to me saying, can you come with me, please? And I followed her and she said, can you put these shorts on and dance on the podium? And all your friends will have free drinks. Being, I was 19 going to me, I was like, are you serious? Yeah. Why not? Let's do this. So I literally went on the podium, was dancing. You know, at the time it was so big in the clubs, dancers in the clubs. Yeah. So I danced and then she came out later on and she paid me. And I said, what are you doing? She said, you were amazing. Like, are you a dancer? I was like, no, I can be. Do you want me to come back next week? That's the story. And how so it began. Yeah. Uh, liberally, Arthur, drop some names of the great artists you've worked with. Oh, wow. And I, show off now. Show hey, off. Okay, this is my... Tell us everything. I work with Kylie Minogue, Pussycat Dolls, uh, Beyonce, Pink. Uh, I work with Rihanna. I work with oh, so many... Uh, Emma Bond and Girls Aloud, Banana Rama, Will Young, Charlotte. So many. Okay. And, I feel shy to do you, do, you, do you get to meet them all and, and, and chat with them all? And if so, uh, who's your knockout? Who did you really admire as a human being and as a performer and an artist? They all have been amazing. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. But I might say my girls who I adore and love is Girls Aloud. Oh, good. Okay. Because my career ended with them. Right. I finished dancing when I was 30 
I did my last ever tour with Girls Aloud. So they're always, always going to be my ultimate band and like artists I ever worked Good with. Good on you. Um, now, you have a local interest, obviously, because uh, our friend um, Brian Dowling and yourself are married. We are. And you are going to tell me now, I hope, how you met Brian, because I, I can't oh, figure out how you guys. That's uh, a, that's a very paths. funny story. Yeah, please. Uh, it was 2002. 27th of December. He keeps saying 28, I'm saying 27. <laughs> Brian, it was in a club. I It's a funny story because I just broke up with a with a guy. Yeah. And I was in a club dancing on my own. This song came out. I was like, I'm going to dance and I'm going to go home. Start dancing and I see this guy coming to me. Kind of arrogant way because he was like, oh yeah, I'm here. Thinking I know who he is. But I didn't know who he was, <laughs> what he's doing. So he's coming and start talking to me. And at the time... I couldn't speak English. So I went, yeah, bonjour, ça va? He was like, oh, no. And then, <laughs> I don't know what's happened. His friends literally pushed him. He's like, who cares? Just go, just yeah. see how it goes. Yeah. And then we start actually, obviously, start dating. But I didn't know who he was. So yeah. I didn't pay attention. He told me he was a PR. And I said to him, I'm a dancer. He's like, yeah, of course. Like, every gay guy is a dancer <laughs> these days. So I said, no, I am. Seriously, like, I, truly I am. I'm doing actually Zoe Burkett on a TV show next week. It was, I think, January 2003, exactly. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, of course you are. And I will never forget, for a week we were seeing each other, and I'm there doing CDUK with Zoe Burkett, and then in a canteen saying, I'm seeing this guy, guys, his name is Brian, he's cute, he's in PR, and then I will never forget, in a canteen in Granada Television, Brian Downing and Tess Daly walking past, uh, and I went, oh my God. That's the guy. That's the guy. <laughs> and the girls were like, Brian Downing? I was like, I don't know his second name was Brian. <laughs> so long story short, he ignored me. Being a little bitch, can I say that? <laughs> so I, I was like, I can't believe he just ignored me. And then I'm going on live TV, CDAK, three, two, one, live, and I'm seeing Tess and him in the back of the room, gossiping, watching me. So that's how we wow. met. And then we fell in love, but we were dated like four and a half years in on and off. Okay. You know, we were young. There was so much happening. I just arrived in UK. I wanted to make my own mark. Yeah. You know, I didn't care who you are. I don't really care celebrity life. I don't care. And then we split up for five years. Okay. Yeah. So not many people know that. We split yeah. up for five years. You know, I think we were young. It was too... Yeah. Too much so, to, to do. Exactly. Too much living to do. Exactly. Yeah. And at the time, I remember he was so famous. Like, it was... He was loving life. Sure. So we couldn't date. And then, yeah. And then, long story short, we go back to get in 2011. And it was the best thing we have ever, ever done. And oh he told God. me, now we're back. You know what that means? I was like, what? You have to ask me to marry you. I was like... Oh. You have to ask him. I have to ask Why? him. Why? That's how princess he is. Oh, I, I yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, I was expecting that, that answer. Yeah. He's, he's like, I'm not going to ask you to marry me. You have to oh, ask me. Very good. And now we're together. Yeah. So I asked him in 2014. We got married in 2015. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. And you're living in what part of Ireland? We now? are in Kildare, Straffan. Okay, great. Yeah. And you're obviously happy and pass on my very best happy. to Brian, obviously. I will. Thank you. Um, let me ask you then, of course, about Dancing with the Stars, because that's where we saw you last night uh, in action. And now that you're involved in the programme, shall we talk a little bit about last night then? Why, why not? Let's do this. Yeah, it's in every single newspaper today. The country oh needed the glitter and the dresses and the it's excitement. It's true. We all needed that. Honestly, we all needed that. Who impressed you last night? Do you know what? I might say Nina. Yes. Nina. She was great. Nina Carver. Really impressed me. I mean, they were all amazing. What a strong opening. But when Nina, you know, watching the VT, she's not girly. You know, she's been horse riding. Yeah. I didn't know Nina. Because when I walked in, 
I never knew who is who. And Nina was like obviously a massive champion. And I went, oh my gosh, it's going to be very stiff. It's not going to be maybe nice. And she yeah. absolutely smashed it. Great. I was mesmerized. I was absolutely mesmerized. And that's why I said she was the dark horse of the yeah, night. Yeah, good, good, good she description was so of good. her. She was really good. And, and like I say, you thought maybe she was, as a jockey, very she wouldn't be able yeah. to bring that to exactly. the, to the I proceedings. Was very, I was speechless, actually. Um, who else did you did you like last night? I really, I fell in love with Kathy. I think. She was so Kathy sassy. Kelly, yeah. And yes, she was loving life. She was living her best life on that dance floor. Yes. Her facial expressions, her body language... She literally, she was dancing like she didn't have any care in the world. That's probably and the best way to dance. The best it? way, yeah, Ryan. Yeah. That's the best way to yeah, be. Yeah. Don't put too much pressure on yourself. Um, I remember going out onto the, the the toy show this year and a cousin of mine was saying to me, because uh, I was dressed up as a as yeah. team oh, yeah, from, yeah, from, yeah, from the yeah. Lion King. Lion King, yeah. And uh, she, said, I, she said, I looked at you and I thought you could do one of two things. You can either have fun, live it, live it, yeah, and do it. Or be embarrassed, and we'll all know you're embarrassed. So true. And it was a great observation. Embrace it. Embrace it. Yeah. So even if you're dressed up like a whatever, a meerkat, <laughs> or if you're dressed yeah. up in a ball gown, <clears throat> you just have to Embrace commit it. to the thing and, 100%. and get stuck 100%. in. 100%. Did, did you find, um, who do you think has a lot of work to do? I'm trying to be polite here. but who do you Yeah, think, I mean, who needs to? don't tell my husband. I have a little crush on him, Nicholas. Nicholas Roach. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God, he's, he's like the eye candy, but he's got <laughs> a lot of work to do. Okay. We all were like, Okay, Nicholas, off Nicholas, the bike and onto Nicholas, the dance floor. Sorry, Nicholas. Yeah, yeah, no, that's okay. And then that's only half of the acts we've seen, the, yes, the dancers we've yeah. seen, because there's a whole other raft of them next we week. We have six more coming next Sunday. Yes. And everyone handled it. I mean, it, I think the crew and behind the scenes handled it very well in terms of COVID and any cancellations or movement. It was all done. Honestly, it's been play. so well organised. It's incredible. Absolutely. And, Arthur, there's a lot of love coming into you this morning from people who follow you on Instagram. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. So you obviously, your, your account is very popular. Arthur's Brilliant, says Fiona and Westmeath. Uh, I follow him on Instagram. He, comp- he compiled a dance video over lockdown. My son, Dermot, who's eight, danced his little heart out. So well done last night. And another says, I love Arthur. Follow him on Instagram. He's always so happy and full of life. Good luck. And Anne says, I follow Arthur on Instagram. And uh, I love him even more listening to him on the show this morning. He's amazing and contagious. Uh, so that's good news too. Arthur, we're going to leave it there for now. Uh, but uh, don't be a stranger. Come and see us again. Thank- oh, I will. Yeah, I really I enjoyed will. meeting you. And Thank best you so to you much. Meet you. Thank you. Uh, good luck with the rest of the season. Thank you very much, All Ryan. Right, that's uh, Arthur Garonlian. Garonlian. We did it. We did it. Uh, joining us uh, on the show live this morning in studio, I'm glad to say. Uh, coming up to 10 to 10, we'll have more for you after this. At 9.30, is the text number. We have uh, at last, I think we're comfortably now in, in 2022. It's, it's fine and... Uh, we're definitely past the Happy New Year phase, in case anyone was wondering. And we, we now look at, at a whole new range of uncertainties around us. I mean, this is something that has crossed all of our minds in the last two years about uh, children in school, out of school, come when or go on, homework, no homework. Do we take them out? Do we put them in? You're taking an antigen test before you go to work. I mean, that's the new worry. When, and every time I take an antigen test, I kind of look at it going, we got oh, a pit in my stomach. Um, should you book a holiday? Can you afford a holiday? If you are going, can you go abroad? And if you go abroad, if you get trapped when you get there and you're stuck and you have to pay for the hotel, it's just it's constant niggling uncertainty that seems to be, uh, it can be destructive if you're not in the right frame of mind, which is why I want to talk to Dr. Jonathan Egan. Uh, good morning, Jonathan. Good to talk to you again. Good morning, Ryan. And you're uh, at the uh, Galway's, uh, NUI Galway's psychology department, and that's why yep. we wanted to ask you on uh, this morning to talk about uncertainty. Is there a dictionary psychological definition of the word uncertainty as a matter of interest? 
as usual, there are many, but um, it's a tendency for you as a person to consider the possibility of a negative event occurring as unacceptable, as threatening, irrespective of the probability of its occurrence. So it's for you, Ryan, considering something in the future and then thinking a negative event might occur or the event might not occur, and then you feeling that this is unacceptable and threatening, irrespective of the chance of it occurring. Yes. So let's say I say I want to go to Iceland, which I've been trying to go for, yeah. for two years. Oh, yeah. And I've always wanted to go. I've never been before. I'm reading loads of fiction about it and all the rest of it. And I was all very excited about trying to go. Yeah. And every time I think I might go, I'll say, well, if I, if I get... My uncertainty is if I go there and I'd say three or four nights, uh, three or four nights, because yeah. I'd have to come back yeah. for, for TV commitments, obviously. OK, yeah. And yeah. then I go, if, if I get, for whatever reason, it's highly unlikely, but if I got, mm-hmm. say, the virus over there, I had to self-isolate for five days or seven mm-hmm. days, whatever it might be, then I'm I'm in trouble over here work-wise. And, you know, so therefore I just say, well, yeah. I, I can't take the risk. But that's, look, this is a first world, very comfortable sense of uncertainty. I'm not talking, we'll get into the heavier stuff in a minute. But that's, as you say, it, that, that's an example of it. An example. So it's really broken down to two types of things. One is the perspective anxiety, which you're describing there, Ryan. It's that um, it'll fr- fr- frustrate you uh, to look ahead and, and not be able to, to um, be sure that you'll be able to present on the uh, Late Late Show or on in the morning. Um, that you want to be sure about your future. And you can't be given that right now during, during Omicron. And the second one is what's called inhibitory anxiety. And this is more important, really. This is yourself. And that's it. It's uncertainty keeps me from living a full life. Now, if that is a problem, if one of your true desires is to go to Iceland, I'd ask you to really sit down with yourself and go, you know, if, you're, if you really plan and consider all the planning options, such as bringing a good laptop, bringing a good headphones, that you could actually do it in Iceland. I'm sure they've got Wi-Fi in Iceland. Um, that you'd be able to cover the radio part. So maybe the, the time of week you travel over and have a shorter trip might be more feasible. Yeah. But it's about, are, are you stopping yourself? Are you getting into analysis paralysis? And if that occurs, that's not healthy. And what usually is good is talk to a mentor or a peer who, you know, who's done this type of thing, who may, maybe has travelled and, 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 and can be a bit of a, a guide to you, a mentor. Mm. And that will help you explore your options, the pros and cons, in a more... See, when we get frightened, we go into black or white thinking. It's all adrenaline or adrenaline, cortisol. And we get into brain fog and we can't think creatively. We can't think. It's all, I'll be safe or in danger. That's what happens to our thinking process. So take it to then a more, a more realistic <coughs> and practical <coughs> level for people uh, about, for example, schools. And this isn't a conversation about the school story in, yeah. in, in Ireland today, but it's more about this, the psychology behind that, as you know, Jonathan. Yeah. And, and, you know, parents going... Should I, you know, for, particularly with Omicron, you're going, Omicron is quite a, is, is a, quite a tricky proposition because it's yeah. not, as I said yesterday, it's not, a, it doesn't strike me as being a, a variant of destruction, but rather one of yeah. disruption. And the, the point I'm making is that you say, well, if I send my kids in, it, the chances are they might get it. And I, I'm, I'm still a bit confused as to whether or not schools are safe, because that's messaging there has been a little bit peculiar. And do they bring it home? And if they bring it home, can I keep a child in a room for 10 or do we are we all going to get it and then what about <coughs> granny who's got an underlying illness yeah. like, see this, this is it this is probably the thought process for so many people yeah. and it's contagious yeah it, it's good it, well, that's it it's contagious and in fact if you think about you know the, a couple of months ago only 2% of the tests the, the PCR tests were come back positive which yeah. meant probably about 70% of us were, were developing neurotic kind of well not neurotic the, the government was telling us to focus on certain symptoms focus on certain symptoms and because of that, then we start focusing on whether we find it difficult to swallow, shortness of breath, if we've got headaches, if we've got pains in our muscles. Um, and, and what we do is we focus on that. And if you ask somebody to focus on maybe like swallowing six times in a row yeah. over the next five minutes, it's very hard to do. But then you suddenly go, oh, God, I, I feel a bit of a, what we call globus, uh, a ball in your throat or I mean the cream of ale if, if you're 
my mouth is in my throat, or the French would say there's a frog in my throat. So we develop these psychosomatic things when we start to focus. It's a bit like if you hold your uh, mobile phone for too long to your ear, you suddenly get this, this pain in your arm and you wonder, well, isn't this tingling? Because you've probably been resting on your, yeah, your ulnar nerve and then the, your, your arm goes a bit uh, numb. So when we get tense and worried about things, our whole body tenses up, both at the muscular level, but then also at our gastrointestinal level. So people are prone to maybe migraine, bladder, frequency needs to go to the toilet, people with IBS syndrome, that all worsens. And people have your own. For me, it would be more like maybe at a very severe stress, where I might get a bit nauseous and I might get a migraine, rarely, a few times a year. But for some people, that get really gets triggered. And we know that people who've had very, maybe environments where they grew up where they weren't really met as a child and weren't cared for and they weren't soothed, they're more likely to develop these things later on during maybe a COVID pandemic. So, so uncertainty, by what you've said there, if I'm not mistaken, can, uh, can, can translate into a, f- a physical realisation of the psychological yeah. struggle. Yeah, so the psychological struggle we all have um, is that if you draw a triangle on a piece of paper with the, 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 the point at the bottom, so it's standing on, on the, the um, apex there, mm-hmm. and if you put down at the bottom of the triangle, um, like Ryan, my name is Ryan, mm-hmm. am I being self-compassionate? Do I have joy in my life? Am I able to access sadness? Am I able to have a good cry if I'm feeling sad? Am I able to access anger? If I'm feeling uh, losing somebody, you've lost somebody or someone's died, can I ang- anger, access both anger and sadness? Can I access, and this is a big one, hope. Because we recently saw in the Irish Times that about 20% of Irish people don't have hope anymore. That's a big number. A big number. Because yeah. uh, we're usually we're the most optimistic in the world, despite the, the, uh, the relevant facts. And then closeness, which is a huge one. During the pandemic, we haven't been able to be close and we haven't been able to... To, to meet and hug and, and look in the eyes. When you go diving with somebody, you, you will cope much better and cope with the breathing aspect of, of diving if you treat the person by looking at the eyes and the non-verbal reactions. And then with grief, it means that you have to be able to cope with both sadness and anger. So during a pandemic, if you can't access any of those things, and vitality yourself, doing things which you know we enjoy doing, whether it's going to the cinema like you and I, on our own or with other people, mm. and if we can't access any of those, what happens is anxiety goes up. And it's kind of saying to us, you know, Ryan, you're not being yourself. Um, you start to worry about it. You might start to get irritable and fight with people. You might start to clench your teeth or grind them at night. I recommend everyone go to the dentist and get their yearly check at the moment because you've yeah. probably been tense your teeth. And also shame and guilt build up. And if that's not managed, Ryan, we start to go into this rumination, this withdrawal from other people, emotional eating, which a lot of us did. Mm-hmm. And then we moved on to emotional shopping. Um, yeah. and, and now we're, we're moving into to other things such as... Um, getting irritable with people, such as the example you gave with the person with the fridge. You know, so if they came into my therapy room, I would say, okay, let's, let's we'll talk about it. We'll hear the full story. And I go, let's just stop there. Let's really just sit down and think, okay, what's happening inside you? Are you, are you happy? Um, are there people that you can talk to? Is there anybody who's died that we need to talk about in the last 10 years? Oh, let's go back 10 years, you know. Do you feel close to people? Um, do you have hope? What's your sense of who you are as a person? What direction in life? What gives you vitality? For you and I, not being able to go to the cinema was a huge hit yeah. at our vitality level. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's things like we talked the last time, Jerusalem came in and it gave a, the McCream a veil. I, I had what's called globus hystericus, it's where our, our, our ability to swallow or breathe kind of gets, gets limited based on grief or, or nostalgia. Yeah. And, and I was watching with the children last night um, clips of what movies we planned to see. The hope was still there. Yeah. And, and we looked at, because they're, they're 11, 9 and 7, yeah. Two boys and a girl. And we started looking at clips at Sing 2. And my goodness, um, Jerusalem hit me again. Bono is the key uh, protagonist, one of the key protagonists with Scarlett Johansson. Yes, yes. She plays Ash the Porcupine. 
And when stuck in a moment came on, I think maybe we're, we've all been stuck in a moment for, for two years. A lot of us. Yeah. You two songs. Stuck yeah, in a moment. That we've song, just yeah. gotten stuck, that we haven't been able to dislodge, that we're stuck down on the ground and that we need someone to come along and pick us, pick us up and say, come on, come on with me. Mm-hmm. And for, for some of us to get stuck in, and to get back into our vitality, we need someone up here, like I said to you, if you're planning to go to Iceland, someone will take your hand and go, come here, I'll, I'll show you the way. And you can, you can tell your decision in the end. Mm-hmm. But then at the end of the movie, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And mm-hmm. then that really hit me because I, I lectured to, to, usually last time I was meant to lecture to 250 students. And I was looking forward to going into to the, the lectern and, and looking up at the 250, maybe 180 would arrive. Mm. But I discovered I was COVID positive. And, and oh, I Lord, I'm sorry to hear that. Today. And the whole family are COVID positive. Oh, Lord, okay. But, but I, I started to think that the uh, that the, a lot of people are, have have not been able to do that mm. uh, teenage, young adult thing of looking for finding what they're looking for. Yeah. They're moving away, taking the skin of their family off, and through discourse, through love through joy through drinking a beer or a wine and chatting mm. about things mm. and ideas that this, their selfhood has, has been diminished and their uncertainty because you have to kind of a trajectory don't you in your mind a map of where to go this is it I, I, I think that when this started and a year 14 months into it mm. it was a lot easier to say we're going to get vaccinated and we're out the door and I felt very very confident in, in saying that at the time and now, as I as I see people saying, "This is my second birthday," yeah, not being able to do this. I think yeah. if people of a certain age, they're mm-hmm. they're going to be very wistful about, you know, time, and yeah. as as time elapses, and then people with, uh, you know, people getting married. I know this is really yeah. important, and and then hitting <coughs> hitting seventeen, eighteen, twenty one, yeah. all all these big events. You know what I'm talking about, essentially, and that's before yeah. we even get to the sadness of of those those quiet funerals. And yeah. I think that as we head towards two years of this, um, yeah. you mentioned a word there I wrote down, which was irritability. Mm. Uh, there, initially, I could we could we could probably put up with a bit of it, but yeah, people yeah. have become increasingly irritable, yeah, and yeah. the lack of patience, whether it's with I mean, I was in the chemist I was saying this yeah. before Christmas, and the staff gathered round. There were about six of them gathered round to talk to me and say, "Would you please ask your listeners to be patient with with." people yeah, who are yeah, working yeah, behind the yeah. counter. I couldn't believe it. And they really were, I could see they were they were upset in their eyes because they're yeah. also being treated really badly by people yeah, who yeah. are lacking hope, 20%, mm. who are lacking um, certainty, which is why we're here today, mm. Jonathan. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, so it, it is a phenomenon, I think. And, and it's not just us talking gobbledygook. Well, think of the, the antithesis of that. I had a, a, sh- a healthcare shock in, over the summer. But after getting over it and all the operations needed to occur, I went and thanked the team and gave them some wine and chocolate. And I could see lips starting to move and tears in the eyes. And I said, hang on, do you guys not get thanks? I said, you've been a great team. It was the maxillofacial team in, in, the, in University Hospital Galway um, and the nurses. And uh, do you not get thanks? Do you got praise? You know, and they just kind of they shook their heads. And I said, that's what the example you're saying, at a lower case where people are less in, in severe need in, in a pharmacy, hopefully, but whereas compared to people visiting or being in hospital, so the anger is coming out. Now, if we think about it from attachment theory, when we're not being met as a person, when our needs emotionally aren't being met, which, for example, women who are going in to have babies and their partner can't be there, the partner's part of the system. And, and the, the system of, of uh, the way we think about it is wrong. It's like I remember meeting the, the uh, neotinatologist in UHG, and he's saying, well, what do you think? And I said, well, the mother, there's no such thing as a baby, and there's no such thing as a mother. There's a mother and baby, as Winnicott would say, or as uh, uh, Bobby and that would say. It, it's, that's the system you're looking at. 
So a lot of people's emotional closeness needs aren't being met, and what we do is become very angry. Mm. The second way we get angry is being frustrated at not being able to meet the goals, and that's for me particularly. Yes. It's where I'm not able to get into my lecture, which I love to do, and I want to inspire the, the students and get their, their mojo going, their juices flowing, and, mm. and their thinking flowing to really aliven them. Um, and that's really hard to do on a Zoom. And so and that's also another thing. People at work on Zoom all the time, it, it doesn't really stand in. It, it's a bit like the Emperor's New Clothes. So we, we can't... We can't really, um, and I, that's why I feel for teachers, so we didn't give out about teachers, but they've been asked to go into a classroom where they know there might be 25 people um, and there might be some room ventilation. But these, these children, as we know, from the, the 8 to 12-year-olds are carrying a lot more of the, the, the um, Omicron virus. So I can actually feel that they've a right to be that anxious, you know? And, yeah. and it's a bit like they've all read The Emperor's New Clothes as a child. And, and it, it'll stick in their crawl, you know, that, that, you know, hang on, I've been put in a, a bit like the nurses, I've been put in that place now, that's my, my turn now, so please... I think we need to be more caring, more compassionate, and go. Yeah, they have they have a bit of a hard deal at the moment, and, and yeah, the science isn't really that, that that well there. You know, they haven't done RCTs or schools with them without. You know, and um, so we have to be more compassionate, as you're saying, and to catch yourself. If you're about to buy, say, okay, what am I missing? Am I missing uh, love? Am I missing uh, my vitality? I'm not able to play bridge online. That's why I'm gonna bark at the the, the farmer behind the counter. Yeah, um, I'm absolutely. I'm not, uh, you know, there's in in other developments like a text, a couple of texts have come in talking about young people, yeah. um, and and climate change and eco anxiety. Yeah. Now there'll be yeah. people listening and going, "I've never heard the like in my life." But actually, for this generation, it's very serious because people like me and older people, <coughs> many w- won't be around yeah. to 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 pick up the pieces that we've left behind, as it, as it were. Whereas that's their job as the generation incoming and their children and their grandchildren, yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. but but eco anxiety, you know, we're we're talking about uncertainty. There's there's one of the greatest global uncertainties of them all. Well, definitely. And for me, when I grew up in the eighties in Blackrock in Dublin, the what we used to talk as children to each other about the parents didn't know this was the nuclear bomb. Yes, um, yeah. The, the, the nuclear war. What would we do? <laughs> if you're a teenager at thirteen, you hadn't kissed them. Who would you kiss first in the group? All these kind of other questions, um, and uh, you know, what would you do? What would you do if you only had 24 hours to live? For them, for them, it's more distal and abstract, and more uncertain future as we're talking uncertainty. So it's more difficult, and, and this is kind of the, the scientists coming out with these, these facts, and the children are getting uh, obviously in the idealist phase of life, wanting to do something about it, and feeling the chagrin of the governments. You know, as governments do, just take a long time to, to it's like like a, a giant ship to yaw towards another direction. Um, but I, th- I suppose, th- and that's reality. So the reality testing is there. And yeah. there's something about adults talking to the kids and going, you know, adults don't know it all, really. And oh, that's for great, sure. And, that is the great we, revelation of getting older is we know less and less than we ever thought yeah. anyone ever knew. Yeah. It's like watching the, the thing with his kids. And we all cuddle up on the couch because four of us out of the five have, have COVID. <laughs> and my little kid went, isn't this great, Daddy? Isn't this great? Yeah. Isn't this great? No, yeah, it is. This really is great. And so it's about making lemons out of uh, lemon, lemonade For out sure. of lemons. Uh, let me you take know. another comment. My, hus- my husband won't go on holidays or spend money on anything that's not completely necessary as he's afraid we won't be able to afford it. We have three children in college and he is uh, he, uh, self-employed so his income is not set but he's making life miserable for all of us. How can I convince him to at least take a holiday? We won't starve. Because he, yeah. you know, he's worried about the uncertainty of the, the money. And... Yeah. Well, see, some people and particularly people who are in business um they go into what Stephen Hobfall in the UK could talk about conservation of resources. It's, it's like stall the digger, nothing's happening until I know exactly what's going to happen. Mm. And it's, it's almost like in a, in a caravan in the desert, all the all the caravan gets together and protects itself. So he's stuck in that place 
whereas other people in the family aren't. They're in exploratory positions. They want to use some of their capital towards exploration. So there's something about sitting down with the fa- as a family and saying, look, it's okay, we all have our needs here. What can we manage here? Many of us, if, if we're clever in the last year, even if we had very little money, um, planned little holidays, maybe six or seven, maybe for two days here, under, but made sure that we ha- had to have a guarantee from the, the hotel or something that if we couldn't go because of the, the government distri- restrictions or someone in our fa- family was suspected of having COVID or close contact, that we could cancel without losing money. Mm. So there's those types of clever ways of looking at the system and, and uh, manipulating it so that the anxious people in the family can move into a little bit of a... And it's a bit like the people who are vaccine-hesitant. Um, Remember, they, they're frightened. Uncertainty is related to anxiety. It's related to catastrophic thinking. I'm going to die if I take this vaccine. Because I've heard from somebody mm. that their son died or their daughter died. And they're hooked to that one story. And that one story can speak like a, like a picture, a thousand words, and can really frighten people. If you're, if you're prone to anxiety or obsessive-compulsive, uh, you know, uh, rumination, where you, you think that your action could have a catastrophic reaction in your family or without, without, without you, that's really, really, that's a reality for them. So it's about, you know, having, being open to people, meeting them in the eyes. I think this, this, this uh, on the phone stuff might work as well as, as looking in the eyes and somebody's okay, I can hear where you're, you're coming from. That, that seems completely reasonable. Yeah. Can I tell you about what I know? Um, and, you know, but don't try and, for, you know, show something down people's Well, that's, that there's an increasing commentary about that now. In, I noticed in the Irish yeah. and the UK papers in the last few days being, mm. look, at, there's a bunch of people who just aren't going to take this thing. And yeah. Yeah. We, we just have to march on now. And rather than yeah. demonise them, just get on with it and yeah. coexist and say, that's where you are. We've done as much as we can. We've knocked on every door in the neighbourhood. Uh, you're, yeah. you're just not going to take it. So we just have to accept this... <laughs> <laughs> this is it. Yeah. All right, you know, rather than fighting each other, let's just get get on with it and, and get to the next bit. Yeah. Uh, well, it's important. It's, Im- yeah. it's important. It's um, important. I think people working in hospitals will tell you yeah. the numbers. Uh, you know who are yeah. sick, uh, and and we won't get into it now. Other than to say, there has yeah. to be a sense of of uh, live, living now together and yeah. getting on. It's with a bit it. like we attacked and shamed somebody who's self harming. And they came to hospital and said, so who, who had the cuts get there? I cut myself. Well, there's, Why yeah, the hell yeah. Cut, you know. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's, it, it's, there's an element of that. But let me ask you before we go, um, sure. you've got COVID positive, you're sitting there with the kids. There's something yeah. I, I know from uh, socially isolating, at least uh, this Christmas, I found the joy in it. Um, joy. You, will you find the joy now in, in your family oh, isolation? Yeah, I, I think that looking at clips of things too last night, just re- I think we need to do that. We need Bono to get on there and talk about <laughs> how he got involved. In and Scarlett Johansson asked him, for, apparently, to, to, she was playing Ash the Porcupine to, to get used. Is that seven U2 songs? The, the sense of pride, national pride, when I was watching That's so funny. I'll give him a call and see what yeah. he has to say about Sing 2. Yeah. And, and, okay, that's Hi, it. Bono, that's please nice. Please come on. We need a bit of a, you know, a Give us a, a lift. And, yeah, and explain yeah. to what the hell you're doing in that film. All right. Jonathan, <laughs> listen, go well. And I look Thank forward to talking. Right. We'll talk to you in a few months' time and see what's happening. But sure. thanks for your time this morning. Take care, everyone. Take care of yourself. All right. We'll be back shortly. Connor, Connor McCauley, good morning. Good morning, Ryan. How are you? It's lovely to talk to you. What part of the country are you in, Connor? I'm um, in Town, so you could say me, but I'm originally a dub, so... <laughs> well, that's fair enough. I mean, you're covering a bit of both there, aren't you? Home and yeah. away, home and away. And uh, what age are you, Connor? I'm 20 years old. Do you mind if we go back to the beginning of your story? Would that be okay? Yeah, that's completely fine. Take it from course. the start, because you, for, 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 for the first, what, two or three years of your life, it was pretty pretty regular. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, it was pretty regular. Um, it was sort of um, hard to, to understand what was sort of going on, because my mum was actually bringing me to 
doctors because I, I couldn't really walk much. And when I did, I was, I was walking on my toes and I kept falling over. So she knew there was a problem. And for about a year and a half, she kept bringing me to see loads of people. And then at three and a half, I got the diagnosis of Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Now, I've heard of Duchenne muscular dystrophy only because of this job I have. And sometimes I might meet parents of, of, of a child with, with DMD or I might meet somebody who has DMD. Um, so it's not completely unusual to me, but it would be to a lot of people, Connor. Um, and mm-hmm. with that in mind, can you uh, define it as best you can? Yeah, so Duchenne, it's a rare genetic disease that causes um, progressive weakness and loss of muscle mass. Okay. Which means what in, in, in day-to-day? It means um, that you struggle with various tasks um, day-to-day. And as you get older, um, you'll need to start doing more things, such as um, taking heart medication. I was just kind of half hoping you might be able to motor through with that. But why don't we... Are you you're still there, Connor? Yeah, still yeah. there, yeah. Sorry, no, we lost you there for a moment. Um, you were talking about you have to take uh, heart medication, is that what you said? Yeah, as you get older, um, as I said, it progresses. So as I've gotten older myself, I've had to take... Um, All right, we'll, 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 we'll politely, Connor, we'll hold that for a moment and we'll uh, we'll find you in a second. I'm back with you, sorry about that. Not at all, not at all. Uh, you, you mentioned um, the fact that you had to take all this medication and, uh, you know, I think when you're a child and you have something like, you know, a muscular dystrophy... Um, that's one one thing. But getting to school towards the end of um, primary school and heading into the secondary school, that that's mm-hmm. a, that can be a very difficult crossroads for 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 young people. Tell me about your your world in this regard. So yeah, um, when I was starting secondary school, um, my secondary school I went to was Clashnahinchna. Um, my parents in the school, to be honest, were very nervous about me. Um, I was the first ever student with Duchenne muscular dystrophy in the school, so. It was all sort of new to them. Um, they were all sort of nervous about me falling as I was at the time still walking. And really I could feel my thigh muscles were getting a lot weaker. Um, so try, trying to sort of do things like get up from a chair unassisted in the position was getting hard each day. But I, I didn't want to accept really any help. Um, I felt like I was sort of in a battle against everybody and I, I, I just didn't want anyone seeing me struggle. As at the time I really struggled to sort of speak about my illness. Um, after a few weeks in school, um, then I, I tripped and fell. And then after the fall, I, I felt sort of smothered by some of the school staff. Um, they couldn't let me do anything on my own in, in case I had a fall again and got badly hurt. So I, I understand they were just worried then. But at that time, at that age, I, I couldn't understand that. Um, but because of that, I sort of struggled to make new friends in secondary school. And, mm. and then I pushed um, away people I was friends with. Um, so I wouldn't sort of get asked questions. Um, and what were you what were you worried about in terms of? Does it come down to what, even what we were talking about earlier on? What does it come down to appearance, to being different, to your own confidence? What what was happening in your head? Yeah, it was it was pretty much down to appearance. Um, I took steroids from five and a half to ten and a half. So at the end of primary school, I, I had a lot of weight on me, and then all of a sudden, I. I got conscious about my appearance and I, I lost so much weight and everything and I think that's what it really was I think I just didn't know how to be myself um, I, I thought if I showed my disability I would be just stereotyped into a certain position I didn't want to be in I, I just wanted to be Connor Yeah and that was not proving to be an easy thing to do No yeah. No. Mm. And, and you were walking though until what age? 
I was walking till 17. A lot of people with my condition only walk from 8 to 12 years old. So I was really lucky in um, that perspective. Okay. And um, before that then, just to jump back a step, you were in third year junior cert. And it it strikes me as though that was a very, very, uh, that was a crossroads moment for you really, or certainly a, a peak of some sort. Yeah, by third year, to be honest, Ryan, um, I, I was a complete mess. I, I, I felt very close to a breakdown. Um, my psychologist, I, I sort of had since the age I was six, was worried and sent me to get emergency therapy sessions. Um, by that point, I was really saying some very stupid things, like um, I was going to fail my junior cert exams on purpose, and I would say I wasn't going to be around much longer. And I, I really blamed everyone around me um, as my body was deteriorating. I was so angry, and I was just so scared. Uh, well, I can understand it because, you, I, I, and also you're looking at everyone in their flush of youth, you know, running around, doing everything. You, you must have been looking at them going, what, why me? What the hell happened there? Is that, what, is that the sort of thing that was going through your mind? Yeah, there was, there was a lot of envy for people doing what they could do, like sports and, and stuff. I, I would just be in school. I would, I'd be walking, but I wouldn't be able to do much while walking. I, that would be the only thing I'd be able to do. Like I was using the lift. I couldn't do stairs. Um, I had to sit out of PE, so it was it was really hard. Emergency counselling, you just mentioned that. That sounds serious. Yeah, um, I got emergency counselling at the end of third year um, because I, I couldn't cope with it anymore, everything going on. Um, also, with my condition, you do have, you can have things like uh, learning difficulties, so I had that as well. So I was going to resource classes um, and I, I wasn't really able to retain information. Um, I had dyslexia as well, so that was really tough. I was talking to, I don't know if you're familiar with Charlie Bird, he's a friend and colleague of ours, and, and he was talking about uh, motor neuron disease um, uh, before Christmas. His greatest fear was a wheelchair. He was very honest about it. He said, look, I just don't want to be in a wheelchair. I, 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 I just don't want that to happen. He loves walking. He loves mountain climbing and so on. Um, and uh, he just, he, he was just fearful of it and in a, in a very honest way. And I get the sense that when you were heading towards your 16, 17 years old and the walking was starting to deteriorate, you also had a pretty poor relationship with the prospect of a wheelchair. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I had I had a really poor relationship um, with the wheelchair as, uh, as a thing to use. Mm. Um, it was sort of actually, I broke my femur bone um, in fourth year. So it was around January, February that year. And that's what really brought me off my feet. Um, I, I tripped and fell on a wonky path and that was really the time that I had to sort of accept it and say here look the wheelchair is going to be a part of me and I have to use it there was no longer this thing of where I could hide it because my, my leg that I broke was, was too weak So you were in a cast? Yeah I was in a uh, full leg cast um, for about four or five months um, and that was that was tough as well because it was extended out the, the leg cast so it, it would bash into things. It couldn't fit in certain places. So I have to say that was that was very stressful at times. Yeah, and you found yourself then in the chair. Ultimately, I suppose you 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 either accepted what was happening or you kept fighting it and become angrier. Yeah, people people would ask me questions like, "When am I going to get over and everything?" You know, mm-hmm. that's how well I hate it. <laughs> so I I was really sort of upset to answer them questions and sort of say oh you know like soon and I knew deep down that it, that was it I 
was still doing a little bit of walking after my femur break, but I was no longer full-time walking. And then you become a wheelchair user. That, that That's your life. Exactly. I've always had my wheelchair around, um, but I tried to hide it away in my early teenage years. So, yeah, after that, I was really a wheelchair user. And do you think people have different expectations from people who are wheelchair users? Yeah, um, I think so. I think that's what always made me sort of upset. There was stereotypes as well. Um, and I, I couldn't really accept that. Also, wheelchair users are sometimes perceived as, as not doing as much as able-bodied people, which I don't believe now, but at the time I believed stuff like that. Yeah, and that's going to make you feel pretty pretty. Un- unhappy about the world. So when did that change? When did you feel, do you know what, this is this is a better option for me? Um, I think in fourth year, I, I, after being in that third year and being on antidepressants, and, um, I got that help. It, w- it was really after the femur break. Um, it wasn't sm- smooth sailing at all, to be mm. honest, Ryan, after that. But because of that experience and because my mental health improved, I sort of started to accept my body is going to keep getting weaker. But I, I've um, gotten where I am today because of that. Break. Okay. Okay. And, and in terms of what you're doing with your own life, what, what did you study or when you finished school ultimately and, and everything? Yeah, I went to a PLC college. I did P- uh, film production for a year. Oh, good. Okay. Um, now I'm actually working at an accountancy firm um, about 16 hours a week with great employers who actually hired me after hearing my life story on LMFM at the start of COVID, which was great. But, but to be honest, yeah, it, it's not what I want to pursue a career in. So currently I'm doing a lot of courses on the side. Um, funny enough, I'm actually doing a radio course. So Good man. Um, that's what I sort of want to do. Um, I'd love to be a music specialist. Definitely, that would be something I'd really want okay, to do. Okay, great. Well, keep pursuing um, it. Keep pursuing yeah. it because that's it. Keep knocking on the doors; it'll open eventually, and that's a good. That's a good thing. So you're, yeah. you're 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 you know you're keeping the dream alive, as the song says, and you're 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 ambitious and ready for the world. Of course, of course, yeah. Um, um, you're also I noticed the the you're doing a bit of work with the Irish Wheelchair Association. Yeah, I am. Um, the work I've sort of been doing with IWA has been very fun. And um, at the start of 2021, I was asked to put my name down for the Oliver Murphy Youth Leadership Program, yeah. which then me and 11 other people were chosen to train to be IWA leaders. Um, the program was, was rolled out online in, I think it was in partnership with Carlo Regional Youth Service, um, and it lasted 10 weeks. But the main area of focus in the program um, was to support us with leadership skills that may benefit us on um, a personal and social basis. Social basis. Okay, and, and I pr- presume part of that is to get schools talking about wheelchairs and to normalise conversations and attitudes. Well, that was a different programme I did, but the, the programme for schools is actually called the Daisy Programme. Yeah. Um, that's what their plan is. So due to receiving the Toy Show funding, um, IWA is, is working on an education programme for teachers, children and parents delivered true skills. This is great. I mean, that, that's uh, the whole point of the Toy Show Fund uh, from people listening who, who donated generously is to hear a story just like that. Uh, that that's a tremendous result. Uh, delighted to hear that. And it'll hopefully change attitudes among young people, which is what the money was for. So that's good news. So life, life is good, all told, Connor. Yeah, life, life is good at the moment. Um, a lot of still my health struggles are still there and I do struggle a little bit with my mental health. But what I've been able to do over COVID, um, I, I actually started up on um, 
up an Instagram page at StarCode to sort of tell my own personal story with my posts, but also to help raise awareness for others with my conditions or similar types of disabilities to mine. Um, and just inspire people and just show people life isn't that bad. Sounds good, Connor. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. Really good to talk to you. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks All so much. Thanks so much. Connor McCauley yeah. joining us this morning uh, with uh, his story. I enjoyed talking to him. 51551 is the text number. Uh, fans of the TV show Quantum Leap uh, will be delighted to hear that's getting another look in. Uh, I used to watch it myself as a youngster and it's coming back 30 years later. So that's uh, good news for TV heads. Actually, it comes to it brings to mind uh, another programme that was in some ways the main reason for uh, a story that had been now made into a terrific documentary. There was a radio documentary, now it's a TV documentary made by Garrett Daly who joins us on the line now. Good morning, Garrett. Good morning, Ryan. Nice to talk to you as always. And, and this, I mentioned Quantum Leap, but actually this story f- focuses on the A-team. It's the story of, of Keith Byrne and Noel Murray, who in 1985, they lived in Darndale. They went outside to play. Their mum said to them, you know, don't go far. Your dinner's nearly ready. And they ended up in New York. Yeah. <laughs> it was quite extraordinary because they managed to get all the way there. And at the time when they were asked, why did you go to New York? They said they wanted to meet B.A. Baracus from the A-team. <laughs> OK. Now, you, you've put this together. It's a lovely 30-minute documentary, as, as, as was said to me this morning. You could have done it over four hours on Netflix and bored us to tears, but you put it into 30 and it's much neater and um, it's a great story. So I, I think you should just tell us, tell us the story from beginning to end because it, it, it is, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling. It is mind-boggling. I suppose, I mean, they, 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 were, they were streetwise. They were, they were able to kind of, you know, get around no problem. They were used to sort of hopping on buses and hopping on the dart and going around places in Dublin. But, you know, what they sort of did here was quite extraordinary. They, they got on the dart first and they went to, uh, to Dunleary. And they saw the ferry there, and they tried a couple of times to get on the ferry, and they eventually did. They had a great sort of technique where they would sort of blend in with the crowd and try and uh, just get through as the crowd was flowing through. So they eventually got on the ferry. That took them to Hollyhead. There they followed the crowd again and got on a train. Now, I find this quite extraordinary. On the train, they met uh, a couple who sort of said to them, you're welcome to stay at our house overnight. Mm -hmm. Now, they were 10 and 13, so this... Like to to just think how mm. um, this could have turned out horribly wrong, yes. but that, it turned out okay. They looked after them. The next day, they decided to go to Heathrow on the tube. Now, the reason they went to Heathrow, they were used to going out to Dublin Airport uh, to the food courts because at the food courts, it was easy to kind of wander around and maybe take something without anybody noticing. So they kind of thought, we'll go out to Heathrow, uh, go to the food court and maybe get some food there. Their next plan was, you know what, maybe, maybe we could fly back home to Dublin. And somehow uh, they managed to get through security to get airside. Now, it took them a couple of hours, but their technique was they would hold hands, they would walk up and say that their parents are coming along with the boarding pass and the tickets. And it took a couple of attempts, and eventually they got through. They went wandering, looking, obviously, to see what plane they could get on, and they asked uh, this businessman at the time, you know, uh, where he was going. He said he was going to New York. You know, does B.A. Baracus live in New York? <laughs> and he said, well, I think so. They followed him, and that led them to, to, to the gate for what was an Air India jumbo flight. Again, managed to get on after a couple of 
of attempts. There wasn't too many on that plane. They took their seats and before they knew it, they were en route to New York. <laughs> and not a bean between them, I take it. They were dead. The whole thing was pure bunking on this, bunking on there, bunking everywhere. Absolutely. Uh, taking a few things in the duty-free and Heathrow as well as they went through and, and basically just chancing their arm everywhere. They would, they, you know, on the plane, they'd never been on a plane before, so they didn't know how they, did they have to pay for the food? Uh, they were going to hide in the toilet because they kind of thought, oh, no, we've had the food now, they're going to come looking for money on it. Then they fell asleep on the flight because obviously it was quite long, but they do remember watching a James Bond movie on the way over and then all of a sudden they arrived in JFK kind of not knowing what was ahead of them. All right, well, look, here they are as grown men talking about getting on that plane. Imagine 13, 10 from Darndale, never been on a plane in their lives and they just find themselves on an Air Indian flight bound for JFK airport. I think as soon as we got on the runway and kind of looked out the window, it kind of became a bit more real. It's kind of, oh, we're really doing this. Well, I wasn't scared. I don't know about your lad, but I wasn't. Crazy, honest, 747, jumbo jet. And then you just hear the sudden burst of the engine. It's like thunder in the clouds. and It was good when it was going to how fast it was going up the runway and then into the air. Ooh, hold on. <laughs> There's no turning back from this. We're going up into the air. So they're up in the air. They're being served, I presume, Indian... Curry. Okay, good. Yep. So they're, <laughs> and they're sitting there, they sleep, the plane lands and out they get. I mean, keep going. What happens next? So obviously they've now, they follow the crowd making their way to immigration and they got stopped there, um, rightly so, because they were sort of saying, you know, you can't come through. So they kind of waited and eventually they saw a gap and they ducked down underneath the booth and managed to get through. Same with customs. They got through and suddenly they were in the arrivals hall of JFK, uh, which I don't think anybody could believe that they were able to get this far. Now, they spent a couple of hours sort of wandering around JFK. They went and started watching the TVs there. You know, that you please put the coins in to, to sit and watch the, the TVs uh, that were on the on seats. And eventually they wandered out uh, outside onto the, to the tarmac to kind of see what would they do next. They were sort of planning maybe they might, uh, might try and go into the city, uh, trying to figure out where they were, really. Mm. And then, of course, I mean, it's, it's what, about 45 minutes car journey from JFK to the city. So how did they make, where were they bunking then? Well, they were stopped at JFK because they went up to what they thought was a security guard and that turned out to be a New York Port Authority police officer who basically kind of looked at them and sort of said, look, where are your parents? And he brought them to one side. And eventually they sort of said, OK, we're on our own. So he had to call in his supervisor and uh, Sergeant Harrison came down and <laughs> talked to them, thought, this can't be true. And then suddenly the two of them found themselves in the back of a Port Authority police car on their way to the precinct. All right. Here, here they are again, <laughs> looking for direction, success. Something just didn't seem right to me. And I, I stopped them and I asked them where they were going. Me and Keith asked them which way was it to town. I said, the center of town. I said, where are your parents? And the little guy, well, he, was, he was the mouth. He was, he was the ringleader. He says, Mima, Mima, in the center of town, we're going to meet... Uh, I said, you're meeting your parents in the center of town? <laughs> so that's, that's obviously the... Who's the that guy was the... Harrison, is it? Yeah, 
that is uh, that's Officer Kenneth White of okay. the New York Port Authority. So it was amazing actually trying to find the yeah, police officer. Yeah, great to get to get him for the documentary. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's 30, 37 years ago now, yeah. and like we were ringing the Port Authority, and they were like, "What?" I was like, yeah. Two kids. They ended up in New York in nineteen eighty-five. So it took a lot of kind of convincing to sort of say, "Well, we're not we're not winding you up first of all," and then they found Sergeant Harrison, who we'd set up a Zoom call to have a, a chat to him to sort of see what he remembered. And I went on the Zoom call, and there was this other guy, Kenneth White. Wow. And I was saying, sorry, uh, I'm meant to talk to, to Carl Harrison. And he goes, no, I'm, I'm the guy who found them at JFK. And I couldn't believe it. So Amazing. suddenly I was then talking to the officer and the sergeant who looked after them when they were in New York. So they're in the back of a car now en route for downtown New York. Um, and where are they brought and what, what, what next? <laughs> so they're brought to the precinct. And they're looked after because obviously they're juveniles and they're a bit worried about them and they're mm. trying to figure it out. Now, obviously, they detected, obviously, with the brogue, they knew that uh, they weren't from the Bronx, as, as Kenneth White said. So they, they started getting the details. Now, you have to remember, I suppose, in 85, everything is so much slower in terms of trying to put the pieces together. They didn't even know who to call initially. I think they rang Scotland Yard to see if anybody was missing, trying to figure it out. They told them everything, but of course, they, they weren't quite sure what airline they were on. They had literally wandered onto this plane by chance. So they were trying to put all the pieces together. It got a little bit serious for a short time because mm. when it was discovered what airline they were on, uh, Air India had had a disaster about two months. This was August 85. And in June of that year, uh, there was uh, an Air India flight that actually blew up off the coast of mm. Cork. There was a bomb on board and he was traveling from Montreal to London. So in the light of this, it seemed straight away that this, you know, is there any connection here? I mean, there were two young kids, but at the same time, the airline themselves were quite upset that this was happening. So that put a, a, a bit of, you know, it made, made things a little bit serious for a short while until they managed to get all the facts together. Then the security uh, for Air India decided that they'd look after the guys, put them up in a hotel suite, <laughs> looked after them. They had much McDonald's and food that they wanted. They were sitting back watching TV. And then they decided, you know what, we can't have you just in this hotel room for the entire uh, time that you're here. We'll bring you and show you the sights of New York. Oh, come on. Quite extraordinary. So they brought them around to the, around the city, and uh, then it was probably time to go home. Home for his, to see his mammy and have his tea. Yeah, two lads. Home to, yeah, and you know what? It's quite funny because they knew uh, they knew kind of maybe will we be in trouble when we get home because you know we've kind of caused uh, a ruckus here in three countries, and we've had to shut down the terminal in JFK to take people through to show them exactly what we did. It's kind of been a bit of a fuss around us. So yeah. their plan was. You know what, maybe the, the, the jumbo back then coming back, Aer Lingus from, from JFK landed in Shannon and they had this idea, you know what, maybe we'll jump off in oh, Shannon. Yeah. Oh yeah, she might as well. <laughs> <laughs> but they fell asleep and they woke up in Dublin uh, to be met by some Kulak Garda uh, <laughs> at the, on the airport and then their parents were there and they arrived with their I Love New York t-shirts uh, to a waiting press and yeah, they, they basically, it was this once upon a time sort of urban myth story is true. It's a true story and their return, they, they recount the return home to Ireland like this. Two Dublin boys who stowed away on an Air India flight from London to New York at the weekend are now back home. None the worse for their adventure and a little richer. Outside Kulak Air Station, all along the main road, 
news reporters, cameramen, all jumping and jostling to get photographs. They chased me down the road, all the photographers, and my dad told me not to go around near the car because there's no taxing children on the windows. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Garrett, what uh, became of Keith and Noel? We, I, obviously, they feature pr- pr- prominently in the documentary, but uh, give us a, a kind of whirlwind through where they are now, what happened to yeah, them. Yeah, well, they're both, they're both still living in Dublin. And, um, you know, they had a challenging upbringing. And, and then I think, you know, Noel in particular had a, had a, tough, uh, a tough time in life. Um, you know, people will see that in the documentary mm. that, she, you know, he had a, he had a challenging path. They're both in a very good place now. And um, I suppose they're, they're very private men. Um, you know, this is something that happened to them, you know, when they were 10 and 13. And I suppose if, if you think back to when you're that age, if you did something, you know, you're having to recall it all the time. So in a way, I think, you know, uh, they get asked about it a lot, but they are quite private at this stage and both in a very, very good place. Keith, family man, you know, uh, working away, happy out and Noel on a road to recovery, thankfully, at this stage okay. and basically in a, in a good place. But okay. lovely guys. I, I, I absolutely love spending time with them. You can, they still have the cheeky char- charm about them as well as the guy said, the young guy with the mouth. You know, he was, uh, you, you can see that they still have that, that boldness to them and the, the documentary itself uh, what, what, what's to become of it I mean would there be Oscar buzz about it or is that is that another arduous road to travel <laughs> Oscar buzz yeah well that is some road I mean there was we we, we played at the Galway Film Fly that's where we premiered the film yeah. and um, we were lucky enough to win uh, the best short documentary award there which made us eligible for the Oscars uh, now, we then went and had our international premiere in New York at a festival called Doc NYC, which is uh, America's largest documentary festival. And that kind of brought a bit of attention to the film. They put us on what they call a shortlist, which were, were films that they identified as potentially making it to sort of uh, the shortlist of the Oscars. Oh. So you kind of get a bit excited yeah. to think about that and you don't want to think about it at the same time. Do you know, it was a massive reality check as well, though, because... Uh, at that stage, they were sort of asking us, are you guys running a campaign? And, and I was like, a campaign? Um, well, I suppose. Uh, yeah. And then publicists started getting in touch. And the ridiculous money, actually, that you were been asked to kind of, you know, there's a lot of, lot of money needed to run these campaigns and stuff like that. And, you know, that was a bit of an eye-opener. Yes. Now, I kind of felt looking around that, you know, all the other films, you know, the likes of Netflix and Paramount Plus and all these short documentaries backed by big backers, and here was us with our sort of small independent movie, I didn't quite think it would happen. And as it turned out, we didn't make that shortlist at the end of December there. But you know what? The attention was really good because it brought us to the attention of The New Yorker, yeah. uh, an incredibly sort of prestigious publication. And what that then led to is them acquiring the film and they released the film in the States uh, yesterday. Um, so that's oh, great because now yeah. there's a huge kind of, a huge number of people that are going to get a chance to see it there. And obviously we're working on, uh, we're actually talking to RT now about, um, you know, having it shown in Ireland. Oh, uh, that's a must. That, well. that's, a, that's an absolute must. And if, if someone wants to watch it now or later, what, is it available somewhere or do you have to wait? In the next, the next, 
screening is going to take place actually at the Dublin uh, International Film Festival. Okay. So that's taking place at the end of February, February 26th. So there's going to be an in-person screening. There's also going to be an online screening as well. So that's the nearest uh, screening um, in the sort of Irish calendar. If you happen to live in the States, you can watch it now uh, via the New Yorker. But in Ireland, yeah, it'll be the Dublin International Film Festival will be the next screening. It's, 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 it's really, really whip smart and well put together um, a documentary story well told. Garrett, congratulations on nothing to declare. I wish you well. Thanks for your time. Good to talk to you again. Thanks very much, Ryan. Thanks as always. Garrett Daly, uh, the man behind nothing to declare. And it's some, I mean, you'll get a great laugh out of it. I'd heard it was an award-winning Doc on One, Paul Russell's documentary on this the first time. And it was really excellent. Um, And what's so nice about this is the visual uh, as opposed to the audio. So they're they're nice... uh, sister pieces if you like as Morris says one of my all time favourite stories remember listening to the RTE documentary absolutely and um, so you can listen back to that and then watch this at the end of February uh, and hopefully they put it up on RTE because I think you'll really enjoy it 